Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this UCL Minds Lunch Hour Lecture. We're really pleased to have you all with us today. My name's Eleanor Robson. I'm the head of the history department here at UCL, and I'm also a historian of science and knowledge, um, but from the very opposite end of the chronological spectrum that we'll be talking about today. So it's a real pleasure to be introducing uh, Professor John Agar. Um, he and I have had a, a, a long professional relationship together from the opposite um, chronological ends of the um, history of science spectrum. And like me, he's also a head of department um, here at UCL. He's the co-head of um, science and technology studies. So uh, we work very closely together, um, the two departments, um, particularly through research. So John is a historian of modern science and technology and he's the author of books such as The Government Machine, A Revolutionary History of the Computer, which was published by MIT Press in 2003. A very interesting and important book called Constant Touch, A Global History of the Mobile Phone. Um, and the second edition came out in 2013. And no doubt there'll be many more editions as that history is uh, far from done. Then Science in the 20th Century and Beyond, um, Polity 2012. Um, and then as, as well as the books, he is the, um, that he's written on his own, he is the author and editor of two recent uh, UCL Press books, um, one co-edited with Jacob Ward in 2018 called uh, Histories of Technology, the Environment and Modern Britain, and most recently um, his very interesting book, science policy under Thatcher in 2019. And so with all UCL Press books, those books are open access. And so you can go to the UCL Press website and find those and download those and read them for free. In recognition of the amazingly important and um, groundbreaking work on the um, history of, of recent science he, in 2016, uh, Professor Agar was the recipient of the Royal Society's Wilkins Bernal Medawar Medal and Lecture. And so he'll be bringing that um, history of, of science in, in Britain very close to home now, and um, will be talking to us today to answer the fascinating and provocative question, why did a former UCL provost think that research in AI should be stopped? But before I invite him to start the lecture, I just wanted to give you a little reminder about how you can uh, engage with the uh, lecture and ask questions. So you can post your questions uh, as they occur to you while uh, John is talking. And I'll remind you also at the end how to do that if you want some time to think through um, what you've been hearing about or respond to questions that have posed. So you would have received this information in your sign up, but nevertheless, I'll, I'll give you a quick summary again. You just need to go to uh, Slido, so sli.do and uh, enter the code LHL2, so LHL for London lunch hour lecture number two. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand over to Professor John Agar to um, satisfy our curiosity. Over to you, John, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eleanor, and uh, welcome everyone. Um, I'm delighted to be able to give you this, this lecture today. Um, Eleanor, I do go way back. I don't think Eleanor will mind me mentioning. I think we met probably in the 1990s when we were both PhD students interested in history of mathematics. That's quite a while ago. Um, and now we are um, both heads of department um, in, in next door um, offices, more or less, as well at UCL. So thank you, Eleanor. It's, it's, it's a fantastic that you could introduce me. So um, I am co-head of department of Science and Technology Studies with Emma Tobin, uh, STS. Um, let me say a little bit about STS to start with. I'm now gonna share my screen. STS is a useful subject. Uh, we seek to understand two of the greatest forces in the modern world, science and technology, uh, using not just one disciplinary perspective, but applying the techniques of history sociology, political science, and philosophy. 
why is STS needed? Well, we've spent the last year being told that it is necessary to follow the science. But if we know anything, it's surely that to make wise decisions, we need to understand not just the science of viruses or the technology of vaccines, but also how science-based decisions are made, how science relates to government, and how the sheer diversity of society responds to scientific communication. We might be in a better place if our political masters had studied SDS at UCL rather than PPE at Oxford. Now, I said that STS is a useful subject, and for my mind, there's no better preparation for understanding and changing the world, what a UCL education aims for, than STS. Let me tell you about an experimental course that's been running for two years now. It's called STS Perspectives on Big Problems. Each summer, we poll our third-year students and staff about what they think is the biggest problem facing us all. Then, when our new first years arrive, they take that course and learn how STS can help us think through those problems. And this year, they chose artificial intelligence. So, artificial intelligence today, well, if we look at the headlines, we see things like this. We're perhaps at the crest of a wave of excitement over AI, especially around the application of machine learning. And it generates extraordinary headlines and attracts funding. But alongside the positive headlines and the money, there are anxieties and fears. Now we know in SDS that this combination of high expectations and worries is not an unusual feature of the media coverage of emerging technologies. But the field of artificial intelligence research is distinctive in one way. AI research is unusually prone to wild peaks and troughs of excitement and funding. The years when things go well are known as AI summers. The tough times when the money dries up and research is hard are called AI winters. We can see that there was a first AI summer from the 1950s to the 1970s, and then a second in the 1980s. And now we're in the third hottest summer of AI research. But precisely because we know that AI is prone to giant swings up and down, shouldn't we seek to know why they happen? Now, I'm a historian. I'm a historian of modern science and technology. And I think here's where historical methods can help. Because when archives are available, we can reach behind what was publicly known at the time and find deeper causes of change. And I'm gonna tell you a story based on historical research in the archives held in UCL's special collections. Because one of the causes of the first AI winter was a critical report written in 1972 by James Lighthill, an outstanding mathematician who later became provost of UCL. Now here's how the entrepreneur and AI practitioner Daniel Crevier summarized the situation in his 1993 book, AI, the tumultuous history of the search for artificial intelligence. American researchers were not the only ones to feel the ebbing of the tide. A scathing report to their government on the state of AI research devastated their British colleagues. Its author, Sir James Lighthill, had distinguished himself in fluid dynamics 
and had occupied Cambridge University's Lucasian Chair of Mathematics, held afterwards by Stephen Hawking. Lighthill pointed out to the Science Research Council of the UK that AI's grandiose objectives remained largely unmet. And as a result, his report called for a virtual halt to all AI research in Britain. Now, in some ways, that's the familiar account. AI's charged with overpromising, making grand predictions about its progress that were not fulfilled. And while Lighthill's report did indeed cause AI research to stall, and his report was a factor in this worldwide phenomenon, I suggest that Lighthill's critique, or rather his principled motivation of it, has been misunderstood. And I'm going to show the archive evidence from UCL's special collections that proves it. So here's the plan for today. I'm going to tell the story in um, five stages. First, I'm going to offer a quick overview of the history of AI. Second, I'm going to introduce our protagonist properly. Who exactly was James Lighthill? Third, I'm going to trace the argument of the Lighthill report and why it was so devastating for AI research. Fourth, I'm going to look at the responses from AI researchers at the time. And finally, and it will become obvious, I hope, why I'm going to reflect on what the story tells us about today's choices in science policy and industrial strategy. So first, the short history of AI. Well, there are two versions of the history of artificial intelligence, a long version and a short version. The long version reaches way back. It might start with stories and myths of moving mechanical statues in ancient Greece, or this one, a brazen head, a head made of bronze that was supposedly made by the medieval scholar Roger Bacon, a mechanical head that could talk. The long history would place today's attempts to make machines that do intelligent things, in a long line of very real projects to build automata. These enlightenment machines were often beautiful triumphs of artisanal skill, luxury objects paid for by patrons to provoke reflection and awe. Automatons such as this famous silver swan Built by the artisan John Joseph Merlin in 1773, the swan moves and appears to search and choose tiny, delicious fish to eat. You can still see it in operation at the Bose Museum in Barnard Castle. It's still the only valid reason to travel to Barnard Castle. Automata blurred the line between the living and the non-living. They lived in the uncanny valley. They troubled spectators by performing and doing things that surely only the living or even human could do. But these things were various, playing music, speaking and singing, moving limbs with purpose, or even in the case of one of my favorites, Jacques Valcanson's duck, not only eating, but excreting too. Now, it was only in the 20th century that what was seen as distinctively human was intelligent cognition. And this is where we find the short history of AI. <clears throat> now, at mid-century, the intensity and speed of global conflict had created the need for fast electronic manipulation of symbols and data. The result was the first stored program computers, giant machines full of thousands of electronic valves. We see here one of the first, a Ferranti Mark I built in Manchester. On the right, you can see Alan Turing. Now, when this photograph was taken, Alan Turing had just published a paper in the philosophy journal Mind 
called computing machinery and intelligence, Turing asked what it would mean to answer the question, can machines think? Now we all know about one part of his answer, the imitation game, the so-called Turing test. But much of the paper is Turing's rebuttal of all the possible objections to the idea of thinking machines. Turing wrote, I believe that at the end of the century, the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. It was an idea and a bold prediction, but scientific ideas remain just that without funding. The first warm summer of artificial intelligence research would not have happened without the Cold War. The Cold War pumped money, mostly American defense dollars, into fast computing. I love this cover of Time magazine from 1950, the same year as Turing's Mind paper and the year of the start of the conflict in Korea. It shows a mainframe computer, but it has an eye. And that eye is examining its own paper tape data output. It is self-reflective, clearly intelligent. The strap line asks, can man build a Superman? But it's also notice wearing a uniform, the uniform of a US Admiral. It's a military machine, a Cold War intelligent automaton. American scientists, mathematicians and cyberneticians in the early Cold War crystallized the field of artificial intelligence. The term itself was coined in preparation for a conference at Dartmouth College on the East Coast in 1956. As the proposal written in 1955 stated, the study is to proceed on the basis of the conjecture that every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can in principle be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. And it's from this group that we not only get the name artificial intelligence, but also a host of bold claims and predictions, ones that went beyond Turing. And following the Cold War shock of Sputnik in 1957, the funding faucets were open full. Soon, another imitation game was in play. Scientists in other countries, including Britain, expanded artificial intelligence research through the 1950s, 1960s, and into the 1970s, AI was booming. Now's a good time to turn to James Lighthill. Who was James Lighthill? Well, here's James Lighthill. Older viewers, listeners might be reminded, like me, of the British comedian Ronnie Barker. Actually, both these pictures are of James Lighthill. Michael James Lighthill was born in 1924 and he won a scholarship to Trinity College, Cambridge at age 15. During the Second World War, he worked at the National Physical Laboratory on supersonic and hypersonic aerodynamics. Afterwards, he taught mathematics at Manchester University, where he ran one of the most powerful and inventive fluid dynamics groups ever formed anywhere. In 1959, he was appointed director of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, RAE Farnborough. His work on supersonic wing shape was used in the design of Concorde. In 1964, he returned to academia as a Royal Society professor at Imperial College before moving to Cambridge as Lucasian professor of mathematics in 1969 succeeding Paul Dirac. So he comes between Paul Dirac and Stephen Hawking, which gives us some sense of his stature as a mathematician. From 1979, he was provost of UCL, University College London, where he remained for a decade. 
At UCL, he stressed the need for universities to produce graduates in useful subjects, such as building. In fact, the modern Bartlett building is a testament to that. In 1998, Lighthill died while swimming around the island of Sark, a feat he had completed four times previously. In terms of his mathematics, Lighthill specialised in fluid dynamics, but in a distinctive way. Many of his best papers started in one practical context, but found application in a wide variety of others. A 1952 paper on jet engine noise was applied to understanding the sun's corona. A 1956 paper on nonlinear acoustics was used in contexts as various as kidney stone therapies, flood waves in rivers, traffic flow on highways. His biofluid dynamics spanned blood flow, breathing, bird flight, and how fish swim. And the UCL special collections are full of drawings of diagrams of fish swimming and birds flying. In 1966, Lighthill was invited onto a working party reviewing UK nuclear fusion research in this work of Cullum. Fusion was classic Cold War big science. It was immensely expensive. It made bold promises and false starts. Lighthill viewed the working party's report as half-hearted. With one other, he broke ranks and issued a minority report. He argued no work on the production of power through fusion reactors was justifiable. He suggested that Cullum's hundreds of staff might be better redirected to efforts to raise the efficiency of British industry by intensively surveying and working on the direct technological problems of business. And the willingness to strike boldly and independently was surely noted within government circles. It was almost certainly why he was chosen to write his report on AI. Now what I'm showing you here is a letter I found in the UCL Special Collections, and I'm just going to read a portion of it. In September 1971, the chair of the Science Research Council, Brian Flowers, wrote to Lighthill. He writes, there are few subjects which at any particular time strike one as having a very special potential for being pervasively important, but artificial intelligence seems to me to be such a field overlapping as it does with neurobiology, psychology, linguistics, and computer-aided learning, not to mention mathematics and computer science proper. These subjects, says Flowers, and artificial intelligence itself are highly complex, very much the preserve of experts, and perhaps sometimes of plausible charlatans. It is getting increasingly difficult for the Research Council to control this mix of activities and make properly informed judgments. Now I consider this letter found in UCL Special Collections in the Lytle archives there to be a, a remarkable and unusual steer. Flowers asked Lighthill to review the field of artificial intelligence. Initially reluctant, by late 1971 and early 1972, he was very busy investigating the state of AI research in the UK. He wrote letters to active researchers and he consulted wider views. He visited teams, notably the ones in Edinburgh. He submitted his report in March 1972. Quite frankly, Lighthill told Flowers, I'm fully aware when my report becomes widely available, I shall be involved in a great deal of controversy. So why did this former UCL provost think that research in AI should be stopped? There's a specific argument in the report, but there's also a deeper explanation that I have found evidence for in the Lighthill archives. Lighthill's specific argument was as follows. <clears throat> Lighthill divided up the subject of AI into three categories, A, B, and C. A, he called 
advanced automation. It was work to replace intelligent human beings by machines for specific purposes. Examples might include control engineering or automating office work or code breaking or missile guidance. C concerned what Lighthill called computer-based central nervous system research. Modeling neurobiological and psychological activities such as pattern recognition, memory, language use, and the acquisition of knowledge. It's like an AI of the brain and mind. ANC linked to established scientific and engineering disciplines. And in the middle was B. B stood for building robots. But under B was a broad class of general intelligence activities, playing games, visual scene analysis, common sense, coordination of eye and hand. B was also supposedly a bridge. It borrowed from A and B and it sought to influence them. But B was the problem, said Lighthill. Its aims and objectives were hard to discern. It was distant from applications and established disciplines. And only the existence of the category B, argued Lighthill, created AI's claim for unity and coherence. And he reported, I quote, a widespread feeling that progress in the bridge category B has been disappointing, both as regards the work actually done and as regards the establishment of good reasons for doing such work and thus creating any unified discipline. So the story of inflated predictions came from failures of work in category B. B was a failed bridge. AI, artificial intelligence, was not and could not be unified, argued Lighthill. Governments should fund A and C through traditional disciplines, but not B. He threw fire, fuel onto the fire in the report as well, um, by adding speculations about why B might have grown at all. Perhaps scientists were pandering to the public and the public's penchant for robots. Perhaps, asked Lighthill, and I quote, the stimulus of laborious male activity is the urge to compensate for lack of female capability of giving birth to children. Total speculations. Lighthill's famous report was published in a deeply unusual format. In 1972, the Science Research Council published it as part of a paper symposium. Included were the Lighthill report and four responses. One was in support and three were critical. The most critical came from, uh, and with the man with most at stake, came from Donald Mickey. Now, Mickey is a fascinating figure. He'd been a teenager when he started working with Turing at Bletchley Park. He was fascinated by the idea of intelligent machines. In the 1950s, finding no employment in that field, he'd worked at UCL with his then wife, the equally interesting Anne McLaren, in animal genetics. He was appointed reader in the Department of Surgical Science in Edinburgh in 1958, but a trip to the States in 1962 opened his eyes to AI developments there. And back in the UK, he lobbied for better computer facilities and remarkably set up his own unofficial unit, which eventually became a Department of Machine Intelligence and Perception. Mickey cultivated AI contacts with researchers from the US and indeed the Soviet Union. And the breadth of this research in Edinburgh could be seen by this imaginary grand exhibition of AI, a proposal written in 1972 and sent to Lighthill. It includes programs which can rapidly acquire skill in any of a wide range of games on being told the rules. Programs able to compose interesting music or poetry or graphic art. Programs able to control a driverless vehicle to navigate an unknown terrain. Programs able to prove mathematical theorems de novo, i.e. from scratch, 
uh, perhaps not the wisest boast to make to a mathematician, programs able to recognize speech, understand stories, make scientific hypotheses given data, programs to use robotic hand-eye devices. Now much of that was category B work, the work like till wanted ending. The work of the Research Council acting on Light Hill's advice cut funding for. And with his rapidly expanding research and bold predictions, one might wonder if Mickey had been the Research Council's target all along. So the Light Hill report does seem to be a critical assault on the coherence of the field of artificial intelligence. But I want to suggest a deeper cause. Evidence gleaned from Lighthill's papers in UCL special collections enable us to uncover a deeper reason for Lighthill's arguments against AI. And in his papers and correspondence in which he expressed deeper convictions and principles, what becomes apparent is Lighthill's commitment to a particular view about how the best science is done. It's a good question, isn't it? Under what conditions, what arrangements, is the best science produced? A clue can be found in the text of the Lighthill report itself, in which he says again and again that the problem is lack of engagement with immediate fields of application. And in the Lighthill archive, we can find empirical evidence for the strength of a conviction about what we might call good science policy. His best and most influential fluid dynamics papers started in problems and ended in problems. The critique of fusion research was an argument for redeployment of skills towards immediate problem solving. At Farnborough, he'd made speeches to the scientists arguing against the ivory tower and stating that science of the highest merit came from science done under the quote boundary condition lovely mathematical way of thinking about it, of application to the world's problems. In 1962, he had set up a new society, the Institute for Mathematics and its Applications, headquarters very near here, um, born out of frustration with the pure orientation of mathematics in established institutions. In the Lighthill Report itself, categories A and C were solid because they were oriented towards fields of applications, and he said so directly. When he was provost at UCL, he supported the research that stressed application to the problems of the world around us. Good provost tradition. In the 1980s, when consulted again by the government, he welcomed the new industrial strategy of funding intelligent knowledge-based systems research under the ALVI programme because of a direct link of research to practical needs. So he welcomed the second AI summer. Now, some of the primary sources I've been looking at are quite hard to figure out. This is some of his sketches for what his Institute of Mathematics and its applications might be like. And I haven't got to the bottom of all those symbols yet. But the overall pattern, I think, is, is quite clear. That Lighthill's convictions about the conditions for the best science became, for him, a guiding principle. Running through Lighthill's career is this principle that the very best scientific work comes from a tight relationship between research and practical problem solving. We might call this orientation to problem solving a grand challenge approach. If so, then it is testament to a distinctive UCL tradition. The Lighthill report on artificial intelligence was not an attack on AI, but a review of AI guided by this principle. For Lighthill, scientific work of the highest merit was framed by practical problem solving, within which excellent scientific excellence was pursued and achieved. The problems might be offered by industry, commerce, government or society more broadly. So I'm going to move to some sort of figured up to date, some conclusions and some final thoughts. So moving to conclusion, some reflections about artificial intelligence then and now, and what are today's choices? So I've told you, I've shown you, I hope, why 
a former UCL provost thought that research in AI should be stopped. He thought that it did not connect clearly enough with the world's problems, as well as being incoherent as a result. But so what? Why be interested in James Lighthill? Why be interested in his report that is now nearly half a century old? Well, we are now in AI's third hottest summer. AI has always had the wild peaks and troughs, high expectations and only some fulfilled. And there's no harm in asking why past summers have ended. Now, I've been reading um, Dame Wendy Hall and Jerome Pezenti's recent report to government on growing the AI industry in the UK. It's perhaps the recent analogue to the Light Hill report. So this came out, I think, over this year or the year before. It's a review of AI that makes recommendations to government, just like Light Hill's report. But it differs. It's immensely positive. And it's part of a framing now. AI is regarded as strategically essential to the British economy. It is one of the four grand challenges of the industrial strategy. And that's what you see in this other image. So artificial intelligence and data alongside aging society, clean growth and the future of mobility are four grand challenges being set as strategic aims for research funded by UKRI. Now, the authors of uh, Growing the Artificial Intelligence Industry in the UK, uh, Wendy Hall and Jerome Pezenti, well, uh, Hall is a, uh, a, uh, a deeply respected academic computer scientist with roots in industry. Pezenti is VP of AI at Facebook. The funding figures they quote are startling, even if they are to be taken with perhaps a pinch of salt. The US government spending $1.2 billion in, quote, unclassified R&D for AI in 2016, for example. But compare that to McKinsey's estimate of big tech firms investing between $20 and $30 billion in the same period. There's now an ecosystem with big tech firms and research at universities intertwined. But it's no longer a case of, of big companies buying the spin-offs, but of a much further reach. And I quote again from uh, Hall and Pezenti, uh, leading players are not just hiring from universities, they're hiring the universities. Amazon, Google and Microsoft have moved to funding professorships and directly acquiring university researchers in the search for competitive advantage. There's a huge demand for skills. And it may be a research ecosystem, but there's no doubt what the keystone species are and who is at the top of the food chain. So one big difference between AI then and now is the role of big tech, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and so on. And they have very deep pockets. The summer they are funding may feel like an endless one. But perhaps seasons, winters and summers, are a bad metaphor. There's no natural inevitable turning of the earth here, but rather choices are made. Choices that affect research, choices of what to fund and what problems to solve. So I want to end with um, a contrast and a question. First, the contrast, um, and it concerns accountability. Lighthill, an independent scientist, was asked by a research council, a public body, to review the field of AI. The research council then made decisions based on advice. But decisions of the research council were accountable. They would be accountable through the internal processes of peer review. They were in principle accountable through the external processes of parliament. 
as public money could be questioned. A minister could be asked in Parliament, an advisor pressed by select committee, we could ask our MP. The AI of the third summer is not accountable in this way. Much as we would want to know the decision, the decision-making processes of big tech and therefore of the AI around us are inaccessible, we don't know, and unaccountable, we can't seek redress or explanation by right. Now, Light Talk might have been right or wrong, but the decisions he influenced were democratically within our hands in principle. And this contrast between then and now leads to a final observation and a question. My final observation is that AI research today is intensely problem-oriented. You could cite many examples from Hall and Presenti's advice to government. You've only got to look through the descriptions of startup companies, the news on venture capital investments, and each one is linked to uh, problems of various kinds. AI for health, AI for self-driving cars, AI for sustainable development goals, AI for giving social media users a better, more bespoke, more personal service for ads. So this is indeed an orientation towards problem solving. Lighthill would be happy, but there is something missing. Something that Lighthill didn't ask about, despite his lifelong commitment to research orientation towards problems. Who chooses the problems? And what democratic route do we have to shape those choices? Thank you very much. I'm going to say thank you. Thank you to Matt and Sana and particularly Eleanor for introducing me. Thank you for listening. Come and study with us if you want to hear about problems and how to solve them in a broad context of science and technology in society. Come and join us at STS. And I'd like to say a special thanks for access to the Lighthill Papers. History only works if we can get access to archives to UCL special collections for keeping them and showing them so well. So thank you very much. John, thank you so much. What a rich and thought provoking uh, paper. I'm sitting here sort of with my sort of two identities uh, thinking about this at the same time as a fellow historian of, of knowledge, thinking about the relationship between power structures, funding agencies and the practitioners and then all of those issues you touched on uh, around, yeah, decision-making. Um, but then also as, as a UK citizen, taxpayer, etc., living in the present moment as well and being asked to, to think about the role of AI in our lives and the relationship between science and governance right now. So a huge amount to think about. We've got some questions that are appearing already. Great. I have a question for you from my sort of history history hat. So I'll, I'll kick things off and then we can come in questions. So fascinated by Flower's letter, as you say, it's a bit of a hefty nudge, isn't it? Right? So 1971, what is going on at that point to make, to make the Science Research Council, or perhaps Flowers in particular, think that there might be charlatans around Mm -hmm. bending British taxpayers' money inappropriately. And then is the Research Council then, oh, clearly they, they accept Lighthill's report by the sound mm. of it, so are they getting the answer they want or are they just having to live with Lighthill's, what Lighthill comes up with? So what I haven't found yet are the UK government archives where I see the other side of this, mm. this story. It's 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 well within the period of history where those archives should be open, and it maybe I've just been looking in the wrong places. But I've not been able to track the discussion within Whitehall of what they make of the Lighthill report. 
Um, so all I get is the correspondence back to Lighthill and they seem to be happy with it. And we know that the funding decisions were changed later. Largely, um, you know, Edinburgh uh, suffers quite a lot um, in this period, um, but it's not just them, uh, Sussex, Essex, Cambridge, other places where are deeply affected by this. And the, the, the sort of the, 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 the story of the AI winter ends, enters into uh, artificial intelligence researchers um, stories they tell themselves about about their discipline and their funding and and uh, there's a there's a there's a um, and all the problems it caused um, so it certainly did have effect um, not just in British funding circles but elsewhere that report was read elsewhere it's been cited as an influence in the states for example there are other critical arguments going on that the time it's not just light hill but i think it's one of the factors mm -hmm. but what else is going on here um so the 1970s early 1970s were within funding of science it's the period where the big post-war boom in funding of science is beginning to flatten out and people are uh, nervous about the growing expanse of science the expense of science um, and this is only going to get more difficult as we go through the 1970s and then have all the external factors of the world economy, the oil shocks and the, uh, the problems of, of, that are more specific to Britain as well. Um, so I think we're entering a period of turbulence for science funding, a flattening of science funding, and you know, this becomes part of the picture here. Um, so that's some of the broad other factors that are going on. Yeah, thank you. And then related to this, Simon R, <clears throat> excuse me, Simon R asked a really interesting question. Um, Post-war secrecy concerning Bletchley Park hindered the UK development of IT. Mm. So did the Provost report then do the same for AI? You suggested it does, <laughs> but there's an interest, it'd be interesting to dig deep more deeply into that parallel with Bletchley Park. And then following on from that, does he did he regret making that report? Do we, do we have any sense? It doesn't regret it, no. So there's two questions there. Thank you, Simon. Great questions. Um, on the second one, did he regret it? No. You, there's correspondence in the 1980s when they get back in contact and say, look, we're thinking about um, funding artificial intelligence research at quite high levels again. What do you think? And he welcomes it. But he says, I didn't, didn't, I, the, his report was the right thing to say the right criticisms to make at that time. He stands by them. He doesn't seem to regret them whatsoever, whilst welcoming the new funding, largely because it was more attached to problem solving. So he's, he's, it satisfies his conditions for where good science comes from. Um, so he doesn't regret the report and he welcomes more problem-oriented research when it is funded again in the 1980s. Um, on secrecy, I, I mean, I, I, I do agree. The, the Bletchley Park, of course, was the state's deepest secret. Um, only in the 1970s do the cracks form and word becomes more public. Um, and the stories of Colossus and Turing and others, um, that begins to be told really from a couple of years, a year or so after the Light Hill report. Um, but I, I do agree, I do agree that the, 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 the ability to talk freely about what was done at Bletchley Park was a constraint on what was possible. Um, so we see that in how, um, in the early post-war computing efforts and how it's certainly employed people who are deeply involved in Bletchley Park, um, but in ways that, that they were unable to freely talk about their experience. Um, and we, we have plenty of testimony how even amongst themselves um, that secrecy was respected. Um, what happens in this case? Well, is it, it's not really a case of secrecy. I mean, I would argue that it, the Light Hill Report shouldn't just be seen as a, an attack on AI, as it sometimes is. Um, rather, Lighthill is applying a principle of what makes good science and one which he's developed and is into a deep conviction and is evidence for that before and after. So it's what he would say, because we know that's what, how he thinks the conditions for good science should operate. Um, and actually, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. I think that there is 
uh, great capacity for good science when it is um, rooted and responding, engaging with the world's problems. Um, and, but those problems can often be overwhelming for researchers. And actually a lot of the institutions that we have which do insulate scientists so that they can work are precisely because the incessant demand for problem solving from all corners of the world. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very interesting relationship and one which I think in terms of modern science policy, um, we could pay more attention to. Because I think the crucial question is, who articulates problems in what way and in ways which can then engage science? And that bottom-up encouragement of articulation of problems is the route to increasing um, research and development spending, I would say, not top-down setting of, um, of what problems are. People close to the problems know what the problems are. That means businesses small and large. It means also hosts of other uh, places where problems are encountered in society and culture. Well, looking at Mickey's list, I mean, that was extraordinary, wasn't it? It was almost, yeah. uh, I was just incredibly forward thinking. And so, it's, not, it's, not, it's not also unusual. I think you can, you can, a lot of AI teams generated lists like that. We find it in the Dartmouth conference from 56. Um, you know, similar lists of or wish lists, or, or, or not the best, more than wish lists. These are intentions um, of what to, of what what can be done. So but they are extraordinary. I agree, they're extraordinary claims. Yeah. So a question, another historical question, before we think about the, the contemporary, from Mark B, who studied computer science at UCL in in the eighties, um, and he asks. Um, did you find any evidence of UCL's own computer science department's view on the report? And you know, how, how institutionally UCL responded to it? No, I haven't. So um, the, the, the correspondence, the replies, um, Lighthill obviously wrote to and talked to in person quite a lot of people, um, but we don't have a complete archive of replies. And I don't have one from people working in UCL. And UCL you know, ha has a, uh, an important and established computer science department. You know, later on, it's gonna be very important for linking to the internet, for example. Um, it's big and, uh, and diverse, and including in areas of artificial intelligence now, of course, um, in, in different branches of UCL. Um, it's typical UCL has lots and lots and lots of um, units and centers. Um, but no, I haven't found uh, specific responses from people working at UCL. It's, it's a lovely coincidence that, um, that both Mickey and uh, Lighthill uh, worked at UCL but didn't overlap. But I don't yet have um, the response from UCL. Thank you. Um, so you're yeah, thinking about the contemporary world now, let's put our sort of uh, contemporary hats on. So asking you to think sort of in, again in parallel. So this is from Dimitri. With the passing of Dame Fiona Caldicott, do you see any parallels on whether we will and should see a revision on the strict rules of data sharing in the NHS? Mm. In the NHS? Uh, yeah, or perhaps that... data sharing more generally in terms of decision making and... Um, yeah. So, I mean, this, there has been fairly controversial projects, it's fair to say, where um, NHS data has been released for AI research, fairly not well handled affairs, really. I mean, I am torn, I have to say, um, because I can see the immense advantages. Uh, the NHS is a unique and extraordinary institution, but it is an, it's a national health service. And as a national health service, it, it sits on and has an immense amount of data and the tools of machine learning and AI must be able to use and analyze that data in ways that will surely help all of us. But it's all about control and access and who makes the choices. So I think the, the problem is that the there isn't, I think, accountability and redress um, 
for ways in which data is used to the extent there should be, um, there wouldn't have been the controversy um, over AI data and London hospitals um, of a couple of years ago if those rules had been clearer or the expectations of accountability and democratic control had been clearer. Uh, the NHS is ours and we that is our data and we should be choosing how we how it how it's used. But as I said, I'm immensely sympathetic to the research which says with that data we can improve all of our health. So those are yeah, these big questions of accountability and transparency that we're picking up with um, the, the, the end of your talk and as you're drawing the parallel with the NHS thing. Is that something that is, I mean, one, one's tempted to sort of detect the hand of Dominic Cummings behind all this, but is that something that's actually much more embedded in the way government is, is working now? And what chance hmm. is there of, of that directionality turning? Because one feels that that's much bigger than the examples yeah. we're discussing today. So I'm going to make a plea here, and it sort of comes out of one of my other research projects, which was to look at science policy making under Margaret Thatcher. And the idea there was those files have been released, we can look again behind the scenes, understand the non-public reasons for why choices were made in science policy during the 1980s. And what I was able to show was that what we thought we knew, in, based on public statements at the time, wasn't the whole story and actually there was a sh big shift in science policy that was that took place for reasons that were largely inaccessible at the time and the lesson I take from that is we often do not have good um, arguments or good analyses based on the full evidence because we don't have open enough government um, if we, if the discussions of science policy had been more open in the 1980s, those arguments would have been open and critiqued. Likewise, the arguments today, it's, it's, I think it's too important not to be open and have more people in the conversation to discuss and guide it. And so I'd hesitate to say we know the full reasons for what happens in the current government, what happened, what was in fact the influence of say Dominic Cummings, what was, how were decisions taken? Because um, I know from my research that that we would have made a mistaken analysis if we approached it that way in the 1980s. But in some ways that's a, that's a council of despair. We do need to have something to say. We have to have something to, to be able to, you know, to state what would make good policy. But I, I wish, I wish we had a more open access to decision-making um, and a conversation around it. Yeah, and it's an interesting contrast with the push for scientific practice itself to be increasingly open. If you think about yes. the science agenda, the open knowledge agenda, which UCL is very much at the forefront. Good point, well, yeah, was, good parallels, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. We're almost out of time, but there's one really interesting question that's just come up from Matt Wright, who is a PhD researcher who is um, looking at, at Donald Mickey. So he's asking, is Lighthill, a, was he a fair choice for conducting this review, given the antagonism his pre presence caused? Or is that, yeah. that only obvious after the fact? So Mickey is such an interesting character. He's also complex. And actually some of his writing is contradictory, it goes off in lots of different directions, but he's incredibly imaginative. I haven't got my head, to be honest, fully around how Mickey operates and how the Mickey archives are big and they're at the British Library and I welcome the fact that there's a PhD going on there on that project because we need a better understanding. Um, his relationship with Lighthill, obviously it did go sour. Uh, Mickey was very angry. Um, but the back and forth before that is, uh, is I think they're trying to find a way to, to, to talk to each other um, and it doesn't quite work. And then the relationship goes sour, to be honest. Um, was he a good, was he, the, was he a fair choice? Well, we don't know whether the steer 
that Flowers gave was a steer to look at Mickey, actually. I'm not, think, I'm not suggesting that he's the charlatan in question. He wasn't a charlatan. Um, his work was fantastically interesting. But there's no doubt that he was the main, um, uh, the, the, the main, the main loser, I would say, in terms of funding decisions thereafter. Thank you, John. We have spent a full hour. This has been amazing. I've really enjoyed it and I'm sure everyone else has too, but we could spend the rest of the afternoon talking, but we can't. So regretfully, I'm going to um, bring uh, the hour to close. Thank you, John, enormously for this incredible talk. And thank you everyone who's contributed questions and who's listened. Um, it's been a fantastic hour. There's plenty more this where um, this came from. So do visit the UCL Minds webpage to see what's coming up next. Um, hope to see you um, all soon. Stay well until then. And thank you all very, very much indeed. <laughs>